Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Charity and the band for leading us in worship. Good morning, Rock Hill. It's good to be with you. This morning we've been, or these past few months, we've been going through a series in John. And this morning we're going to pick up, like Jim said, in those famous words etched in the minds of many of us, the words of John 3.16 and following through verse 21. These words were, they were part of the way that I was raised. They were part of my upbringing in a Christian home. Um, I really have no memory without these words. And at what point they entered my journey, I'm not sure whether that was Sunday school or my dad sharing the gospel with me on the bottom bunk of my childhood bed for the first time. Maybe it was the words that God used to open my heart and the words which I first believed upon. I don't remember exactly. My dad's in the room. If you want to ask him after the service, maybe he does. But regardless, I have history with these words. Odds are many of you do too. Like Jim said, they're, they're popular. Even people in the culture have heard these words. And if you haven't, don't worry. You'll hear them soon. As I wrestled with what to bring before you this Sunday, I was reflecting on a scene from a recent movie called The Atom Project. It's a movie about time travel, and there's, near the end of the movie, there's this scene where young Adam and old Adam, the same person, but like decades apart in age because it's a time travel movie, are approaching their father, Lewis, and they're telling him that he's, he's going to die while Adam is still young. And, and Lewis says, I, I already know. And he apologizes for not being there for his son and moves quickly on to proclaiming his love over his son. Lewis looks at Adam and goes, you're my son and I love you. Adam just returns with mockery. So cute, so cute. You're my boy and I love you. I get it, you don't, you don't have to go into it. I'm so proud of you. I, I get it. I don't think you do. And he, he grabs his son by the face and he locks him in his gaze and he just lays it on him. From the moment I saw you take your first breath till eternity, I love you. You're my son and I love you. And the hard exterior that began with mockery begins to melt until his son is weeping on his shoulder, and the only thing he can let out is, I love you too, Dad. I love you too. I tell you this story, this scene I was reflecting on, to communicate something about humanity. To what lengths must someone go to convince us of their love? Why do we find it so hard to believe that we could be the object of another's love? I know the result or underlying every crisis of identity I've ever had, whether in high school, college, or last week. I only wish that was a joke. (laughs) Was the question, am I lovable? 
I'm not asking, am I lovely? I'm not asking, is there something in me that is worth loving? But despite all that is in me that is not lovely, could I still be the object of another's love? If I don't make X amount of money, if I don't pass the test, if I don't look like that, if I'm not smart enough or whatever enough, in that moment, am I still lovable? Could I still be, could we, when we are not lovely, still be the object of another's love? The reformer and theologian of the Reformation, John Calvin, takes this general idea and applies it specifically to God. In commenting on John 3.16, he says this. I think it'll be on the screen. Men are not easily convinced that God loves them. So to remove all doubt, he has expressly stated that we are so very dear to God that for our sakes, he did not spare even his only begotten son. The main point of my message today will be to drive home the idea that God goes to great lengths to save his world and to show his love. One more time, God goes to great lengths to save his world and to show his love. I pray, Father, but that by the end of this sermon, everyone within the sound of my voice, whether joining us online or in this room, will be convinced of your love and will be able to say in return, I love you too, Heavenly Father, I love you too. I pray that we would all respond by moving toward you and not away. God, go with me. If you don't go, I don't want to go. Help me to speak with power and clarity. Amen. Let's read the passage and then walk back through the famous verse, John 3.16, nearly word by word, nearly phrase by phrase. And then we'll cover the last few verses at a, a very rapid pace. Hear the word of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whatever lives by the truth, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen, so that it may be revealed that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. All right, here we go, John 3.16, those famous words. Four. Four tells us that John is going to explain something. He's going to be explaining that which came right before it, verses 14 and 15. If you guys remember a few weeks back, Dave preached on these two verses. 
and the preceding 13. They go like this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. Like Dave explained a few weeks back, Jesus is alluding to this story from Numbers chapter 21. The people of God were in the wilderness and they began to raise complaints. Did you bring us out of Egypt so that we would die in the wilderness? They completely lacked faith. God didn't bring them out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. He brought them out of Egypt to bring them to the promised land. He didn't bring them out of Egypt to remain in bondage, but to bring them to freedom. Their complaints continue to arise. We, we, have, we have no water, we have no bread, and we despise this miserable food. Talking about the, the manna that God provided from he- heaven. They complain about not having water, even though one chapter earlier, God literally split open a rock to make provision for their water. In response to their complaining and their lack of faith, God sends judgment in the form of fiery serpents. After a few of them had been bit and died, they they repent and they call out for, for deliverance. They ask Moses to pray for them. And so God tells Moses to build a bronze snake and to put it on a pole. All they had to do was look to the snake and be healed. To look away from that venomous bite, that which was killing them, and look to that which God had raised up. You know, it doesn't take much to look. It doesn't take riches. It doesn't take great strength. It doesn't take a great IQ. You don't have to be an adult. You don't need a certain status in society. You don't have to have a certain religious or moral standing. It doesn't take much to look. And it's these words which John is trying to explain. It's this metaphor which helps us to understand what Christ came to do. The Son of Man had to be lifted up so that when everyone looked to him, as Charity was saying in the intro, everyone who looks to him could have life. They have to look away from that venomous bite of sin and death, that venomous sting, and turn toward that which God raised up. Turn toward that which would deliver them. From this we see that God the Son will sacrifice his own life to save his world and to show his love. God the Father will sacrifice his own son to save his world and show his love. For God. God acted. God intervened. God looked upon the earth and could not keep himself from doing something about it. We see the initiative of God in this verse. God loved the world. God gave his son. God is the object of our belief. God desires that none should perish, so he he offers eternal life. God, the same God that, that Nicodemus had studied in the law, the prophets, and the writings, this God was about to blow the categories of this religious teacher. God will act to save his world and to show his love. For God so loved. Here we see the love of God, the motive of God. Elsewhere, John will tell us that God is love. But here we have something 
more specific, less philosophical, less theoretical, more practical, costly, a shocking love, a love that motivated God to action and to generosity, a love that motivated God to come into the world. Love is the reason Jesus was given, both in the incarnation and in the crucifixion. But, but Mr. Preacher, sir, um, I have an objection. How can you say that God loves when, when I've watched my mom's leg deteriorate for the last decade? I watched her go from athlete of athletes, sliding with my sister in her stomach into second base, to someone who struggles to walk down the hall. Um, objection, Mr. Preacher, sir. How can you say that God loves when there's countless, unimaginable suffering happening to those in the Ukrainian war right now? Um, objection, Mr. Preacher, sir. How can you say that God is, is, is one who loves the world when the default state is perishing, where if we do not act, perishing is the lot? Objection, how could I possibly be the object of another's love? To that I respond, it hasn't always been this way, and it won't always be this way. You see, God, he made a world that was good. He made a world where the default state was life with God in an abundant land, life with God in an abundant garden. But it was humanity that chose autonomy from God over life with God. It was humanity that chose to go their own way, to sin and disobey. It was humanity that brought about the curse. And so God's righteous action in response to sin is judgment, condemnation, and perishing. But that doesn't mean that the effects of sin have been taken away. No, they manifest in all kinds of ways, from legs that don't function right, to warring states, to people who are not so easily convinced that God loves them. It hasn't always been this way, nor will it always be this way. You see, John, the writer of our gospel today, also tells us in the book of Revelation about the future about what it will be like one day. He says this, Look, God's dwelling place, it's now among the people. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. I'm making everything new. God will go to great lengths to show his love and save his world. He will one day make all things new to save his world and show his love. I hope you begin to see the case that's mounting, that God will go to such great lengths to show you this. For God so loved the world. The world is the object of God's love, and this is shocking for a number of reasons. It's shocking because this is the same world that didn't recognize him. This is the same world that chose darkness and evil over light and walking in the truth. 
It's shocking because of the scope of the world. In my understanding, this is both humanity and the realm in which humans live. And perhaps it's shocking because we find it hard to believe that we could be the object of another's love. For God, God will love that which is not lovely to save his world and to show his love. God so loved the world that he gave. This tells us that God's love motivated him to do something. It motivated him to give. Here we see the generosity of God, but not disconnected from the gift which he gave. He gave his one and only son. He gave his son in the incarnation. Here is the first time we've seen the words one and only since the prologue. So John wants us to to bring our attention back to the prologue. He, He gave us his son to demonstrate who God was to reveal himself to his world, but also to show us what perfect humanity looks like. But God didn't just give Jesus in the incarnation, but also in the crucifixion. The Son of Man had to be lifted up. He had to be lifted up so that when we sinned, when we walked away from God, there there was something we could look to that could save us. It's by his life, death, and resurrection that we too can have eternal life and have the hope of a future resurrection. You see, God, he will give generously to save his world and show his love God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. I've never even met my son. He hasn't even been born yet, but that seems unfathomable. Who could give up a son? Who could give up an only son? Perhaps the only way to remove all doubt is to give that which is most precious But the objections still arise. Why couldn't God just write his name in the sky with the clouds and say, I am real, sincerely God? Maybe if I just saw God, maybe then I would be convinced. Maybe if I saw the signs, if I saw the miracles. But John finishes out this book by saying, I suppose not even the whole world is big enough to contain the books it would take to to outline all the words and deeds of Jesus. The sky is a canvas far too small. Jesus had to come this way. You might say, perhaps if I only saw him. We're not talking about a theoretical love. We're talking about love wrapped in flesh, king of kings coming to earth for you. Maybe it wasn't during our day, but he came to earth. He bridged the gap between God and humanity for our sakes. Maybe if I just saw the miracles. But as we've seen in the temple narrative, they missed the sign. And as we'll see when we get to Lazarus, not even a dead man coming out of his grave is enough to convince everybody. God gave that which was most precious to him. 
He's holding nothing back. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, will he not graciously give us along with him all things? God is not nickel and diming you. God is not holding something back if it is for your good. God will hold nothing back to save his world. God will hold nothing back to show his love. For God so loved the world that whoever, I'd like to just say whoever, no exceptions. That means regardless of race, gender, status, this message is for you. Young or old, rich or poor, this message is for you. But you might say, oh, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my background. You don't know where I've been. No exceptions. This message is for you. Yeah, but, but I'm not a religious person. I'm not like that. This message is for you. Whatever excuse you're, you're coming up with in your mind, no exceptions. This message is for you. God will offer the widest possible invitation to save his world and to show his love. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, notice it says believes, not believed. It's ongoing. This, this, believe, this belief is not just an assent to the facts. One philosopher said it this way, belief is aligning your whole being to act as if something is so. Belief is throwing yourself on the mercies of God now and forever. Belief is a whole life commitment that starts today and never stops. Whoever believes in him, he is the object of our belief. He is the one in whom we put our trust. He is the one on whom we rely. It is to him that we look as he was raised up and are saved. You see, God will make the requirement simple in order to save his world and show his love. Notice I didn't say easy. I said simple. It's something that a child can understand, but that doesn't make it easy. Sometimes you'll be asked to do something that is contrary to popular belief. What do you mean I'm supposed to look at this bronze serpent? I need to go to a doctor. I need an anti-serum. What do you mean I look at this man crucified on a Roman cross? I need to find out how to be good. What do you mean that guy paid for my sins? I find out how to do it on my own, but you can't. God makes the requirement so simple to save his world, and to show his love. I hope you see the evidence. I hope you see the case building. I hope you see it mounting. God is saying, you're my son. I love you. You're my boy. I love you. I'm so proud. I hope you see the case building. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish. 
Because of sin, perishing is now the default state of the world. If we do not act, perishing is our lot. If we do not believe in the, the, the name of the one and only Son, perishing is our lot. The Bible describes perishing in many ways. Perishing, lostness, outer darkness, abiding under the wrath of God, bodily torment, all with one idea, a life without God and a life apart from the salvation of God leads to a horrible existence. If you come to the end of life and never believe that this horrible existence is a place called hell, to be sure, hell is a place you go when you die, but that doesn't mean there is not a horrible existence on this side of death. To quote Dallas Willard, but make no mistake, hell is not an oops or a slip. One does not miss heaven by a hair, but by constant effort to avoid and escape God. Outer darkness is for the one who everything else said wants it, whose entire orientation has slowly yet firmly set itself against God and therefore the universe as it actually is. End quote. But let me remind you, this is not why the Son came. The Son did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. This is not what He wants. That's why He offers eternal life. The Son desires that none should perish, that all would come to a knowledge of the truth. That's why He's done all of this. He's done all of these things to save the world and show His love. This is not the outcome He desires for you. That's why he's gone to such great lengths. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. But is a great contrast that pits perishing against eternal life. Darkness against walking in the light. Condemnation against judgment, living under the wrath of God versus living under the grace of God. There's two very different alternatives, two very different realities. When someone believes in Him, that is, when they act as if, they align their whole being to act as if this is true, that God saves His world, that God loves His people, that Jesus really was raised on a Roman cross for the sins of the world. They receive eternal Life. But this life that we're talking about needs to be understood in the context of the verses which Dave preached on. The context of the whole chapter. This is a life in God's kingdom. A life that begins with being born again. In a physical birth, there's someone who works really hard and there's someone who's born. In a spiritual birth, God does the work and we are born. But not to the neglect of our belief, of our faith and repentance. Life in the kingdom is not life one day, someday. Life in the kingdom is here today for those who will receive it. It starts now and goes for eternity. 
Life in the kingdom is the life of God and the love of God indwelling the believer. Indwelling his people now and forevermore. God will grant a life more abundant and a life without end to save his world and to demonstrate his love. What a verse. It's familiar. It's old, we have history with it, but what a verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I hope now you see what great lengths God goes to for your sake to save his world and to show his love. Verses 17 through 21 show us that there are two responses to the grace of God. Verse 18 shows us that there is belief or unbelief. And verses 19 through 21 show us that there is, there is loving the light or there is hating the light. There is walking in the truth or, or hiding in the darkness. There is either being revealed to be someone who believes in God, to be someone whose life happens in God and through God, or there is someone being exposed for their evil deeds. There is not middle ground. There are two responses to the grace of God. Our God has gone to such great lengths. He has sacrificed. He's acted. He's made all things new. He's loved that which is not lovely. He's given generously. He's offered the widest possible invitation. He's made the requirement simple, and he will one day make all things new. All to show his love and to save his world. My question now for you is how will you respond? How will you respond? Will you draw near to him? Will you fix your eyes upon him? Will you look to him? My prayer is that you would be convinced of his love because he has held nothing back. And that from your lips and from your life response would be drawn the words, I love you too, Father. I love you too. God, I pray that this morning you would help us to respond in a way that brings about life. That whether this is the first time or the hundredth or the thousandth time we've heard this, that we would come to you the light of God, to come to you, the Son of God. God, I pray that we would see all that you have done and receive your love for us this, this day. I pray that we would see how you have acted to save
God, thank you for all that you have done. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.